I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Nicholas Goumayou of Chateau Pichon Longville Comtesse de Lalande on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Yeah, thank you. So you recently took over Pichon Lalande. Yeah, it was uh, late director. 2012. Uh, huge project. I'm very honored. You know, Pichon Lalande is part of the history of wine, part of the history of Bordeaux. It's an ancient vineyard. I mean, first planted in the 17th century. Um, when it was just one single vineyard, and uh, in 1850, a father, Mr. de Pichon-Longueville, uh, decided to, to share the vineyard in two parts between the two sons. This is what we call now Pichon-Baron or Pichon-Longueville, and the three daughters, Pichon-Comtesse or Pichon-Lalande. And uh, since then, the ownerships are separated totally. And um, as for us at Pichon-Lalande, uh, Ruderer, uh, Champagne, and that means the Rousseau family, is the fourth family owning this vineyard. And they took over in 2006. They purchased the majority share. Exactly. So how did you get there? You studied enology in Bordeaux. Uh, well, I studied first enology and uh, precisely genetics applied to enology with Professor Denis Dubordieu. It was in mid-90s, so uh, I'm afraid it's already quite 20 years ago. And that was very unique experience. And, um, well, I've been back to school a few years uh, after to go back to agronomics and wine production, something much more, I should say, applied directly to the wine production and the winemaking. So that means that I've studied also at the um, agronomic school in Montpellier, and there I also learned winemaking. So before it was more theoretical, and then in Montpellier it was a little more exactly. practical. Exactly, so a complementary um, profile. And you worked for the French government for a bit. Yeah, a bit. For an agriculture ministry on files linking different ministries like agriculture, environment, and health uh, with problematics like chemistry and uh, crop protection. So it was very interesting because I think that we all have made a lot of efforts on the quality, the precision of 
crop protection. And today, I think that even if there are uh, different ways to protect crop, like organic, like biodynamic, like lutte raisonnée, as we say in French, the question of sustainable development is a kind of obsession for everyone. And we're all citizens as winemakers, as managers, and we're all very careful with that kind of problem because we are talking about the future of agriculture, future of our terroir, future of the earth. So everything we, we, we try to make and try to, to understand today is made for the next generations. So uh, we have a responsibility. So you did short stints working at Chateau Aubryon and also at Chateau Margaux. Yeah, I trained myself uh, when I, I went back to school in Montpellier. Uh, I trained myself at Aubryon, then at Chateau Margaux. Well, there are very good schools, as you can imagine. And for me, it was, uh, um, it was obviously the places where I had to learn from the, the best people in Bordeaux. What do you think you learned at that period of time? The precision, the balance we can try to reach between the scientism and the empirism, because we are all talking about agriculture afterwards. So we are very dependent on the weather, the global environment, the climate, and so on. Microclimate, macroclimate, everything. And the knowledges that those people gave to me were very important even today. I think many times about everything I've learned from them. And um, generally speaking, I've learned from those two beautiful estates that there are no little details or less important details. Everything is important from the very uh, beginning of the plantation to the marketing skills and obviously the winemaking. Everything has to be under control or if it's not under control, we have to considering each step in the process of, I mean, it's the management of a firm, but very special because we are about to produce wine. Every year is different because of our climate in Bordeaux, because we are around the 45th parallel. Every year is different. The climate is different. So every year we have to make a new wife from quite crash down. And this is also the magic in, in our job. I mean, every year we have to make a new baby. There is no recipe to apply. And that's the fascinating side of, of this job, which is not a job, but a patient. I mean, so in 2007, you assumed a directorship role at Monrose in San Estefan. How did that come about? I was looking for a, a job as a technical director. And, uh, uh, well, I, I've been in touch with Jean-Bernard Delmas. Because um, he used to be at Aubryon. That's it. He, he has made uh, something like um, 45 different vintages of Aubryon. Uh, since 1961 and then um, he was the CEO or, um, of Chateau Montrose since 2006 when the Brick brothers bought the estate and uh, so we were in touch and uh, he hired me as a technical director and I, I was 32 years old and uh, it was a lot for me and uh, but it was I mean such a, an honor to work with him and for such a label like Chateau Montrose what was he like in person? He's a nice guy, a very ni nice man. And uh, I've learned so many things from him every single day. I mean, because he knows everything about the wine industry, about the winemaking. And uh, he's someone very efficient in terms of taking decisions and um, trying to be the most efficient 
to make the best wine as possible. And um, well, when I did talk about the balance between knowledgeable things and empirism, it's exactly the kind of person that is aware to those concepts, which are so uh, sensitive, so touchy, but that you have to feel if you want to improve in this, uh, in this industry. And what did you take up as your task in 2007 in San Estef? What were your goals? I think that the main point is that Montrose was and is still very famous for uh, making full-body, massive, masculine wines. I think that we could, we could, as all of us and everywhere in the world, but I mean, we could improve a bit the quality of wine. And um, the main point was to analyze where were the, the skills or the tasks we could improve with the technical team in place. And thanks to its experience at Montrose, we, we tried to, uh, to improve every step of the winemaking process. And um, coming from a, a very firm and massive wine to something probably a bit more refined, elegant, and obviously, when you know the, the footprint of terroir in Saint-Estef and in Moros, uh, particularly speaking, it was not that obvious, but that's why it was so fascinating. I mean, so I can remember uh, making my, my, first, uh, my first vintage, well, the 2007, at Montrose with the Cello Master. We talked a lot about the pump-overs, the duration of pump-overs, just to try to reach the balance between this very vintage was not a, the kind of vintage for which you have to over-extract the wines, you know. So um, I think it was this vintage was very important for both of us to understand how the other one can work and the kind of the, the style of, of the wine we want to uh, to get. Uh, then we had the 2008, which is a vintage I like a lot because to me it's a kind of uh, the little brother of 2010. Everything is in good concentration, very balanced, very straight, very classic, left bank style wine. Because I don't hear much about eights in the market. Oh, eight. Yeah, the main problem of, of 08, well, it has two main problems. First, uh, we had to release it during the very crisis, um, financial, financial crisis, so, so it was a treat. Uh, but talking about the wine, the main problem of 2008 is 09 and 10. Because King, everybody King knows about 09 and 10, and we will, we have all forgotten the 08. And um, but we'll be back because 09 and 10 are, are made for the next 50 years or more, and we'll open the bottles in uh, 15 to 20 years. The 08 will be more, well, approachable earlier than them. So uh, we'll discover it in uh, in a few years now, in three to five years, and it's brilliant wine, I'm sure. Because when I look at Montrose from an earlier period, say the famous 1990, I think of a big wine that has a little bit of what I might call rustic tannins and maybe a little Britannomyces, maybe a little sweaty saddle kind of horse leather character to it. Coming out of that era, that was also a wine that was rated 100 points. Coming out of that era, were you trying to make a little bit more of an elegant wine that was still big, less rustic? This is all the balance we are talking about. I mean, we're still in saint Estef. You have to respect the history. You have to respect the style of the wines made there. You have to respect the terroir, even if the terroir is much more powerful than us. But when you have this obsession and this conviction that all the great wines are first made in the vineyard, that means that consequently, once your harvest is made, 
in the cuvery, you don't have to change the style of the wine. So I'm not a very, uh, I'm not very fond of technologies used in the cuvery. My conviction is that once you have a beautiful first material coming from the vineyard, everything is done. Then, during the vinification, you have to work very precisely, very smoothly, gently in terms of extraction. And this is the best way to express the terroir, the personality, the character of the terroir, but in the same time, trying not to over-extract to avoid rough, green, bitter tannins. And that was, I think, the, the goal we, we wanted to reach at Montrose. And because we learned how to work together for the 07 and the 08 vintage, then we got the fabulous 09, then 10 vintages. And we were used to work together. So, uh, I mean, the, the coincidence of, at last, having learned how to work together and having to make the 09 and 10. It was such a pleasure to, to make beautiful wines. And I just hope that in my the rest of my career, that means 30 more years, I guess, I will have the opportunity to make wines like 09 and 10. But stylistically, they're a little different, 9 and 10. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the inner quality of the wines of both 09 and 10 is, is the same. But they are different. 09 is much more... Not new world style, because we're still in Bordeaux, but it's very flashy. Not jammy, but very flashy, very exotic, aromatically very expressive, even powerful. And the 10 is much more, like I said about the 08, is much more classic, classic Bordeaux style wine. I love the idea of an arrow. You know where it comes from, you know where it goes. It's very straight, very precise. And even if we could have made some not austere but tough wines of tasty like tough wines in the first years of aging. We all know that the balance and the aromatic evolution will come with the aging in bottles. So um, to me, I'm much more a 10 vintage guy. It's perfect wine, perfect wine. I, I don't know until which former vintage we have to come back to find that, that level of quality. Is it 82? Is it 61 or probably 59? Um, I don't know. I was kind of thinking 89 because, you know, it has the ripeness but also the freshness. And I make this comparison between, in the one hand, 89 and 10, and in the other hand, 90 and 09. Sure. And I have this feeling that now the 89 pass over the, the 90. That's my sense, most of the time. And this is probably how we could consider the 09 and 10 will age, same way. But are we thinking now that the wines are maybe a little bit more approachable, younger because of refined tannins and maybe some global warming, like in general in Bordeaux? That's for sure, but uh, the global warming will help us to, uh, to ripe or to mature the late varietals, the, the late grapes like the, the cabs, Frank and above all Cabernet Sauvignon. The question is, because of more sugar in the juices, so consequently by fermentation, more alcohol in the wines, what will be the balance? Uh, will we be able to keep this balance, this freshness, which such characterizes the wines made in, in France? Uh, this is the main point. Reaching the maturity, the optimum maturity, that means the, the maturity of tannins of seeds, is the one thing. Keeping this balance and this subtlety and this elegance, so obvious, 
is another point. Does that have something to do with the freshness level in the finished wine with how long it's aged in wood? Because, you know, it, where you are now, Pichon Lalon, you vary from 18 to over two years, 18 months to 25 months of time in wood. Does that vary with the vintage when you're trying to keep something a little bit more fresh? Well, first, the freshness is about not picking up the grapes too late. It's, first of all, the, the very point, because once you have reached the uh, phenolic maturity, the optimum maturity, the risk you can take is to lay the grapes on feet and to let the acidity decreasing a lot. Then the lack of acidity is the worst to get if you want to keep the freshness. Then after, during the aging in barrel, the freshness is still the same. But if on top of a lack of freshness, because of a lack of acidity, you add too much tannins, you add too much wood aromas, well, your wine is absolutely disbalanced. And this is not the kind of wine I want to make. And thank God, I think this is not the, the kind of wine that I've made since today. So you moved to Pichon Lalande, and how did that come about? How did the move from Montrose to Pichon Lalande evolve for you? I was looking for a new um, a new challenge to deal with, and um, when I left uh, Montrose, it was for a summer of 2012, and um, I've been in, in touch with Frédéric Rousseau, the owner of Radora Champagne and of uh, Pichon Lalande, and um, well, he proposed to me general manager um, job for their estates in Bordeaux, that means in, in saint Stephen in Poyac. Well, you can figure out that was a lot for, <laughs> for me once again. Um, but I feel so happy and uh, very impressed, I must tell you. Very impressed because I, I'm not from Bordeaux. My, my family is not in the, in the business at all. Uh, Pichon Lalande is such a name. I mean, Montrose was something, but Pichon Lalande, it's, it's something bigger, bigger. The kind of, of labels which are that famous all over the world because of people before us that traveled a lot to talk about their wines and and of course because of the consistency in the regular regularity of, of the wines made at Pichon Alain. So uh, there are a few labels like this one. Because there is a name recognition factor with Pichon Alain. The label, the name, I mean, the, few the other history, states, really. uh, the house. Uh, so many people in the world I, I, I can meet all over the world that... Uh, have been invited to uh, for lunch or dinner for tastings at Pichon Lalande long before me. <laughs> I mean, uh, so uh, they they quite know much much more things about Pichon Lalande than myself. So uh, I'm very impressed. When did you arrive there? It was in November 2012. And what's it been like working with the Rotor family wine estates? It's very comfortable. I, I don't know if it's correct, but. Um, uh, they know everything about wine because this is their only business. They have wineries in California, in Portugal, in France, in many beautiful appellations. And they know everything about the winemaking, the vine growing. So um, it's a very clear and easy discussion with them about everything, considering the, the life of an estate. Like if you say we need to prune this back, they kind of get what you're saying right away. Absolutely, and the question is is not. But why are uh, uh, do you feel compelled to make the pruning? No, the question is why this way, uh, and it's an exchange of point of views. And even if they are a bit different, so we can make the decision together. It's a way to be part of the renewal of uh, a winery. So uh, it's very interesting for me. So at the same time that you're the managing director at Pichon Lalande, you're also 
in charge of Chateau de Pez and Haute Bouchersor, which are both in San Estef. Yes, that's it. And you had had experience in San Estef and Montrose, so that could carry over to those two other properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good way to keep a, a, a foot in, in San Estef Vineyard. Uh, we have there as about 150 acres vineyard, so, so it's a large one. Pez is famous, you know, in, in Bordeaux and now I think all over the world, but we have to, to promote it more. Uh, but it's a, um, a famous estate because I think it's the most ancient vineyard in saint Estef. People in Bordeaux very well know this, this vineyard because it's a very balanced wine. Our blends are very quite 50-50 Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot. So that means those wines express the personality of saint Estef terroir. It's very earthy, it's very black fruit, licorice, or things like that. But at the same time, thanks to the amount of Merlot we use for the blend, we reach a balance which is very charming, very expressive, very elegant. So uh, it's a good way to please a large number of people. Because uh, there are other estates in San Estef that use a fair amount of Merlot, Costa Estranel being one of them, I believe. <laughs> yes, the question is, which amount of Merlot in the vineyard we, we have planted? Uh, it's always, once again, it's a question of balance. I mean, do we have this uh, sensation that the more cab or the blend, the better they are? Is it a fashion? Is it the, the global warming? Is, it, uh, a, is the global warming a cycle? All those questions that make me think that if we want to, to make the um, plantation evolving a bit, we have to do it very carefully, very um, slowly i don't want to make uh, radical decisions now that i could regret in 10 or 15 years everything we do now is made for the next 25 or 50 years so it's a, a huge responsibility considering the history of each growth so uh, we have to be very careful and where exactly is haute bouches or and what is that uh obosejour is an, another vineyard just close to pez and we make their Probably much more mellow blend, um, 60% blend most of the time. So very sand stuff, but a bit lighter compared to Pez. Uh, not the same density. It's much easier wine to drink, or it's approachable earlier than Pez, that's for sure. But the, it's good for what it is, you know, where we, uh, it, it got it, its own personality, and um, that's all about wine. I mean, and that's why it's always a pleasure to, to, to reach consumers in New York or, uh, or in LA because we have just landed from LA with the uh, Tour de Derive uh, group. And uh, to reach them and to talk to you about Aubeau Séjour because it's quite unnecessary to talk about Pichon Lalande, even if I want to, to promote the, the brand. But they know everything about it. When you talk about Aubeau Séjour, they ask, and my only answer is, okay, just taste it. We'll talk about it then after. Do not drink the label. Afterwards, you quite don't know it. Just drink the wine. Let's talk about it together. And it's very good value. And that it's a wine which is, the people like a lot. What is the perception of the states that you represent in the market? I mean, is it difficult to sell Bordeaux in these times? Or is it easy? Talking about Bordeaux is easy. Because it's talking about history and because Bordeaux is very famous thanks to the wine. Many countries in the world are about to produce beautiful wines today. And consumers have a large choice of very good wines produced in every country of this world. But what we try to do is to explain to people 
for example, here in the US, which is uh, considered as an ancient market for our wines, a loyal market, it's our goal to reach you and to tell you, okay, Bordeaux is still very good. Our wines are some of the best made in the world. We are young. We are modern. We want to, uh, to be in touch with you. It's not Bordeaux wines are, are not that kind of wines you, you can't touch. You're, no, it's not just a name written in a book. We are here to meet you and to talk about wine and to share our wines with you and our passion in winemaking with you. Because wine is all about sharing afterwards. And as Bordeaux guys, I think we have this responsibility to cross the world and to tell you, okay, we, we are also very happy with meeting you and to talk about our wines, even if we consider beautiful wines are made every, somewhere else in the world. But we have to come back to you. This is very important, to come back to you and to meet different kind of consumers. And I've been very, very impressed by the number, uh, the amount of women coming to our tastings, the amount of young people coming to our tastings. Uh, you know, this Tour des Dorives was composed by different chateaux from every part of Bordeaux. It's Chateau Aubaï, pessac léognan Chateau Palmer um, in Margaux, Ducru Bocayou uh, in Saint-Julien, Mouton Rothschild and, and Pichon Lalande uh, from Pauillac, and some wines of uh, Christian Mouex uh, in Pomerol and Saint-Emilion like Magdalene and Ozana. All those people are very, very used to travel a lot, to travel a lot in the world to talk about wines. And we could say, we, we could figure that we don't need to talk about our wines because the label are already fam famous. And we have reached the, the market yet since 40, 50 years. I think we are all very conscious that we have to do more and we have to, to meet different kind of people, different kind of, of uh, uh, consumers, because this is the future of bottled wines. And what about the on-premier situation with sales? Is that helpful to you? Is, is that a hindrance to you in the market? Well, I think that more than ever, it's very helpful for us, for the wine network. What is the purpose? We're going to propose to you a new wine, which is still in barrel, because we, we, we still age in barrel, and you gonna buy it cheaper than you could buy it in two or three years. If you, I want to tell you, just trust in us. We're gonna age it perfectly. We're gonna age it very correctly. We're gonna bottle it very consistently. You're gonna buy it cheaper, and as for us, we're gonna sell it before making, uh, preparing a new vintage in in the vineyard. So it's a win-win strategy and it's a good way if you can taste the imprimeur six months after the harvest it's a good way to create a network a network of uh, a partnership between the producers the distributors then the consumers and it's how bordeaux has crossed some crisis and has crossed the centuries for years but is escalating prices an issue that you have to deal with in terms of finding a market for the wines well, it's also our responsibility to find the uh, the good price to make this imprimeur releasing something good and interesting for consumers. But this is the responsibility of each of us as uh, managers. 
Is it difficult to set a new price each year to to judge your own situation dispassionately and say, okay, well, this is what it's worth this year? I mean, it's not something that every producer does in the world. Yeah, right? that's why we 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 uh, we work so closely uh, to negotiations, to brokers from Bordeaux, to uh, distributors here in the U.S. or in Asia, and uh, that's why I'm talking about network because it's a question of confidence between them and us. If I can melt a large number of figures to have a very precise idea of uh, what is the the level of and the price of exchanges on the market. So it's a good way for me to determine, considering all those components, the right price of my label this very year. And what's the Asian market like? Not having traveled there myself, I'd be curious to know what the reception for the wines is in Asia. We have talked a, a lot about Hong Kong, Singapore, mainland China, but today the our Asian market is uh, the market in every country, above all in Southeast Asia. It's incredible. I mean, uh, uh, every country has discovered there a passion for our wines and for wine. I mean, uh, they probably, they learn very quick. I'm very impressed because they learn very quick and Obviously, they are like you and me. I mean, if they have uh, appreciated and if they have liked drinking my wine, so they want to discover it. So they're going to buy former vintages and they're going to compare my wine with the wine of my neighbors and so on. And the passion in tasting wine is alive. And it's alive in traditional Europe. It's alive in America, North and South. It has no reason not to be in Asia. And uh, that's why our market is now the a global market. It's the market for bottled wines is the whole world. And so to take it back to the wine for a second, you have interest in Chateau de Pez and Haute Bouchezor, which are in San Estefan, which you had worked in that region before. But with Pichon Lalonde, it's in Pauillac. What was that change like for you to move from an estate based in San Estefan to one that's more classically Pauillac? When you make some wine, at the very moment of making wine, the blend for example, are, are to determine the program of your pump-overs during vinification. It's very interesting to consider that when you're in Saint-Estef, it's all about tannins, the how you can feel them. It's all about the tannic structure. You know that aromatically, you will have the expression of the wine later. When you're in Poyac, a bit south of Saint-Estef, a few kilometers south of Saint-Estef. It's already a question of balance between tannic structure and aromatic expression. Uh, that means that the ability of this terroir to reveal quickly the aromas of the wine is very interesting. So you have to be careful with managing both tannins and aromatic structure of the wine. And we talked a little bit about percentages of Merlot to Cabernet. And that's interesting in the Pichon-Lalande case because it's historically known to have a fair amount of Merlot for the area. But in 2013, which is your first full vintage there, 100% Cab in the Pichon-Lalande. How did that happen and why did it happen? 2013, for a first vintage to to manage there was not the easiest, but um, it's a good way to learn quick. Difficult vintage. Yeah, very difficult because the, the whole year in terms of climate, was awful. I don't very well know the, the, the weather man. I think I should replace him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, because we got a lot of rain, quite showers, 
to say the truth, during the, the whole vegetative cycle, above all during the flowering. And we had a very, very bad flowering, above all in the Merlot. So that means that originally the, uh, the yields produced in the Merlot were very, very low. Um, by chance, we had a nice, uh, a nice summer. So it helped us to, um, to ripe the, the grapes and so on. When we reached the very moment of the harvest, uh, we could figure that we got quite no mellow. And the only we have produced were not that complex and were not that elegant. And we, we considered we could not use them for, uh, for the blend of the first label. You know, we, we make um, our blend sessions in December, January, following the, um, the harvest. Um, so we have something like 30 or 40 different wines to taste, and we taste them all blind. It's a good way to, to keep very uh, objective during the tasting. And after a, few, after a few sessions, we revealed the origins of each wine, and we could figure that it was, we have made a 100% cab. Blend, if I should say it's a blend. And, um, well, we looked at each other and said, okay, let's do it again tomorrow to be really sure. Because, uh, as you said, in the past, we have used a, a lot of Merlot in some vintages, for some vintages. Not all, but for some of them, some of them we have used a lot. And um, afterwards, after one, two, three, four more sessions, I assume to say, okay, we are in Bordeaux. We don't have a recipe to apply every year. Every year we have a new baby to make. And this year, it's a cab year, definitely. And we won't use a Merlot or Petit Verdo if we have this feeling that they will disbalance the blend. So afterwards, we have made a few, two to three different blends to, to have a proposal. And at the end of the day, we have... We have chosen the 100% cap we have made. And um, now the wine is made. The press wine is integrated into wine. So what is done is done. This is our new baby. And we are very happy with it. Even if we have made a very low production. Because we will have produced five times less first label compared to 2012. But this is the best that we could make. Uh, I would be happy to, to taste it with you in a few years. And um, we'll have... an an idea on the evolution of this wine, which is uh, unusual, I must say. But afterwards, this is our thirteen. Because I don't think that's happened before, where it's been all Cabernet. Even a vintage like '96, I believe, still had some Merlot in it, which yes, was known yes, yes. as a Cab year. You're, you're right. You're right. Um, but uh, I mean, it's the, the the question is not a um, it's not a question of figures of or of amount. Afterwards, we have to make the best wine. And you were working in a new cuvery in 2013. Yes, we have. Well, the, the former cuvery have been crushed down in 2012. And we have used the new one for this very 13 vintage. It's very interesting project because uh, it's a good way to improve different skills in the winemaking. First of all, it's a revolution for us. It's not for the, the world of viticulture, but we're going to use boxes to make the harvest. Uh, first time ever with this 13 vintage. Then small boxes, small boxes, small boxes, yeah, boxes. very small boxes. Then we have different volumes of vats. That means 50, 70, 85, 
100, 120, 150 hectoliters vats. All so stainless still. Yes, stainless yeah. steel. And um, it's a good way to vinificate each plot separately or each part of plot, part of terroir separately. And God knows it was that useful for the 13 vintage, as you understand, with very low yields. Why? Because before, in the ancient cuvery, we used just 240 hectoliters vats. So that means you have to pick up five to eight hectares large part of the vineyard when yields are very low. You can't fill such big vats, or that means you're going to melt everything. You're going to mix all the plots um, for the same varietal. So no way for considering a, a selection, straight and precise selection. Uh, so, and that, the third point is that we use conical stainless steel vats. So they get bigger at the bottom. Exactly. Bigger at the bottom. And um, that was something that was kind of pioneered by Delma, right? Conical stainless steel. Yes, exactly. And uh, it's a good way to make uh, a good extraction of uh, the components of the grapes. But be careful. It's a good way. It's a way for the over-extraction. So you have to, to make very precise and short pump-overs to extract the components of the berries and above all the tannins of seeds without over-extracting them. Because when you over-extract the juices, you also over-extract the things you don't want to. So, well, we have learned how to use this new cuvery in 2013. Now we hope and we're waiting for a more generous 2014. That's for sure. Because Pichon Lalande also has parcels across the border in San Julian because it's located on the border of Pauillac and San Julian and you have San Julian parcels. So you're fermenting those separately and then kind of blending them in with the Pauillac parcels? Well, actually, the, the reality is that the border between the two towns, Pauillac and San Julian, is not exactly the same as the border between two appellations, Poyac and Saint-Julien. So that means that our vineyard is in Poyac. But we have a few plots which are in the town of Saint-Julien, but in the Poyac vineyard, if that makes sense. I see, okay. Okay, the border is not exactly the administrative border. So that's uh, that's probably very French. (laughs) And if your goal at Montrose and Saint Estef was to refine the tannins and make a wine that was big but more accessible, younger, what is the goal at Pichon Milan now that you're there? Consistency, consistency. I think um, we have a lack of consistency between the mid '90s and mid or late 2000s. Because Parker's on record as saying he was kind of disappointed with the mid '90s from Pichon Milan. And uh, for some reason, I mean, I I don't know why, uh, for some reason, Pichon Lalande has made beautiful bottles in this very period. I always liked the 96. And 96. Then the the 98 is a good wine. Uh, The 2003 is very good wine. Some of those bottles are very good, but it's not that consistent. And I have this feeling that even if the reputation of the growth is made on the basis of very feminine style, very mellow and so on. The beautiful vintages of Pichon Lalande, to me, are very Poyac style. And I think we have to, to find this balance during the, the vinification. Once again, I talk about balance, it's now the fourth, fifth time during the, the, but it does the seem beginning to be of the a key interview. word for so many. Yeah, the balance uh, between the aromatic expression 
of the growth, but the sharpness, the straightness of the tannic structure. Everything is there. And once you want to reach this sharpness, that makes sense, sharpness of the tannic structure, the fact that... Precision, maybe. Precision, precision of the tannic structure, that, mean, that means that you have to be rigorous at every step of the process. Thus, you will get the balance between the aromatic expression and the tannic structure. You will get the precision in the tasting. You will get this large meat palate during the tasting, but the length of the tasting. Because if you want to over-extract, you got a very large meat palate, but the length is not that long. Precise. The finish is shorter. Because the tannins kick in and e- the finish Exactly. Is so we have to, to be probably more rigorous on every step of the of the vine growing, of the winemaking, and so on. But what might we expect in the future from Pichon Lalande in terms of stylistically? Might we see more Cabernet in future years or less Cabernet? Or what will happen in the future? Well, I want to be very careful with um, how I'm going to replace a few plots of Merlot by Cabernet Sauvignon. Because we're going to replace some, considering that when you have a plot with a beautiful gravelly soil, big gravel soil, the cabs are better adapted on it. And sometimes we have Merlot already planted. In the so gravel. we're going to wait for a few more years before replacing them. And every year we have to, to take out two to three hectares of vine. Then we wait two, three more years for the soil to rest. And then we replant. Um, but I think we, we, we're going to decrease a bit the amount of Merlot from 35% planted in the vineyard to something like 30%. But, I, you know, this is a responsibility to, to replace because when you replant, you made it for, for the next generations afterwards. So I don't want to change radically, uh, drastically, the, the style of, of the wines made there. But we're going to increase a bit the amount of Cabernet Sauvignon. Why would you need to replant a few hectares every year, two to three hectares every year? Is that because of vine age or production level or? Both, both. And the, um, uh, the oldest is the vine and the less it produces. So this is the first reason. And then we have, you know, we have made in 2008 a map, a geological map of the vineyard. And now with more precision, we have a more precise idea of what we want to plant which part of the of terroir? So uh, it's a good a good way to improve. I mean, we adapt the kind of soil with the roots and with the vine. Then this is also terroir, you know, uh, with the proximity to the river, with the human labor, the how we have adapted the vine to the piece of terroir as a way to to help this terroir to reveal itself. And our job is to help it. I should say we help him as a person, but we help it to reveal itself. Through the wines. And do you have consultants at Pichon Lalonde? We have two consultants uh, who are Eric Boissonneau and Denis Dubourdieu. Oh, okay. So you're old professor. My old professor. Does he remember you from school? Uh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and not in a too bad way. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. We, we, we are in touch. And he's more known in some ways for white ferments, for fermenting white wines in stainless steel. Well, um, we consult him um, for many, many things and uh, also for the vine growing. And he has very good ideas uh, considering white or red vine afterwards. But no white ever at Pichon Lalonde? No. That's, 
I don't think we have thought about it, but um, you give me an ID. <laughs> and what's the average production today at Peace on the Lawn in terms of bottles? I know 13 was very low for you. Yeah, yeah, 13 was very low. It's an accident, I should say, an accident because of agriculture, because of, well, for some reason. Uh, we produce something like twelve to 15,000 cases of first label and... Quite the same for the second label, 12,000 cases of second label. So really, by Bordeaux standards, it's not the biggest estate. It's not that big. It's sort of medium. Size. Yeah, it's a medium. Yeah, yeah. We try to reach the 45 to, um, to 50 hectoliters an hectare every year. So then it depends on the nature and everything. But uh, this is the goal we reach. So you altered the regime of pumping over at Montrose. Did you do that again at Pichon Alain? Did you take a look at how many times you pump over oh, during yes. the fermentation yeah, but, cycle? But, but you know, that's not a, a revolution. It's just the fact that you have to adapt yourself every year to the kind, of, to the richness of the the grapes you have, and it's the relation between the skins of the grapes, the juice, and uh, how you can feel things. So even at Montrose, I, I did not have a revolution anything, but it's just the fact that it was uh, every year a big discussion with the cellar master to try to uh, to find the best way to make good wines. I mean, and this is the same at Pichon Alain or, or uh, anywhere in, in Bordeaux. Each of us has to adapt itself to its own property, to uh, the quality of the harvest. A lot of times when people talk about Pichon Lalonde, they talk about an elegant and feminine wine. Maybe because it had a, a female representative a couple of times, actually, but famously during the 80s and late 70s and early 90s. But also probably because of how the wine tasted, because of more Merlot. Are we going to see a continuation of the what might be called feminine style of a Pauillac in the future? Or if we do this interview in 20 years, are we going to look back to a change to a, a bigger style, a more masculine style of Pichon Lalonde? I don't think it's a question of being feminine or masculine. And uh, the wines, I'm not sure the wines will be bigger for two reasons. First, because this is not my ambition to make big wines, as you, we can imagine how they could be. I mean, over everything, over extracting, over oaky, over what you want. Um, this is the best way to annoy and, and to, to avoid the notion of terroir. And this is not my culture. But considering that we want to use a bit more Cabernet Sauvignon and that we want to reach a more precise tannic structure, obviously we won't talk about light of or a charming or very feminine wine. In the other hand, I want to tell you that the footprint of the terroir in the wines we produce is so important. And I'm sure that the 100% cab I've made for this 2013 vintage, can't taste the same as if Latour or Pichon Baron would have made the same blend. That's for sure. And that's, a, a, you know, winemaking is a school of humility. And it's a good way to admit my own weakness compared to the terroir and the, the strength of terroir. Blind tasting, most of the people I've tasted this 100% cab with couldn't figure it was. So this is the strength of, of terroir. And we have definitely to adapt ourselves to it, not the opposite. Nicolas Glou-Mayou of Chateau pichon Lalande, also Chateau de Pez and Chateau Haute-Pouchezor in Bordeaux. Thank you for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Nicolas Glou-Mayou. 
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.